In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We assign labels on many categories in our lives, and often certain brand names may dominate those categories. Think about how often you hear phrases like Google it for online searches, or hand me a Kleenex when you need a tissue. Take a Xanax is a popular meme when you want someone to calm down. Too often, the names for pharmaceuticals are used in normal conversation as a solution to control a natural human emotion. But why? On today's podcast, we discuss the efficacy of antidepressants and the subjective process used by doctors to apply the label of depressed on us all. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Kelly, Roger. Um, You know, I've been thinking a lot about what our objective for this podcast is. So as I listened to the first podcast where we discussed uh, chemical imbalance, You know, I find myself asking a series of questions after that, right? You know, if this, then why that? Or if this, then why that? And if chemical imbalance was a theory that led to the development of a lot of drugs to um, improve depression. Can I correct you on that? Yes, please. The theory didn't lead to the development of the drugs. The drugs were developed and then they used the underlying thinking about it to try to make sense of how they may work. Okay. Okay. So, and that made me ask the question, well, if that's not true, Mm -hmm. then why do these drugs still exist? And there was, um, you know, Roger shares a lot of information with us, a lot of studies. And and I love the way that this was framed. Um, It was in, uh, let's see, I think it's one of the scientific journals. I'll include the link to it, but it said relabeling the medications we call antidepressants because technically can you call something an antidepressant if it's not effective in what it was intended to do? And I think I'd like to start that with the question for today. Um, can you call something an antidepressant if it is not effective? So I like the idea of posing questions mm-hmm. because how I've gotten to this point in my career is I had to resolve the conflict between what I was seeing in clinical practice and what I was told should be happening when clients go on psychiatric medications. Now, overwhelmingly, the most prescribed psychiatric medication are antidepressants, the class of antidepressants, SSRIs for the most part. And we had this we had this idea that these drugs would correct some underlying abnormality that would lead somebody to be vulnerable to the development of depression. And the use of these drugs would correct that abnormality, serotonin deficiency, and that in itself would create an effect or a response where the person would be able to resolve a depressive episode. So we now know, and we have known, for 30 years that people with depression do not have a underlying brain abnormality or deficiency within serotonin. So what is the drug actually 
doing and are they effective? And since I have overwhelmingly seen in clinical practice, my patients report some certain things. One, I've had clients come into our office for an evaluation where they've been on these drugs for 10, 15, 20 years. And they tell me they work. Yet my evaluation would determine that they've been severely depressed for an extended period of time, in some cases debilitated by that depressive episode. So my obvious question is, if they are working, why are you so overwhelmed by depression and you're mm-hmm. in my office? Yeah. Do you know the overwhelming response that I get? Because I believe I would be worse. Now that's very unscientific, right? This but, idea but they're that in you your be office worse. because they're already miserable. They're miserable, right? And so we have to do a deep dive into the scientific literature. What is the actual effectiveness? And you you come out with the same conclusion. I think almost anybody who does a deep dive into the literature and talks to experts on methodology and statistics, you will see that there was a problem in being able to differentiate these drugs from placebo. Never resolved. Um, The further you go, you understand that there was fraud. That the drug companies themselves knew that they could not distinguish these drugs from placebo. And a few things stand out. One, there's this file drawer effect. That in the studies, the clinically, the industry-run trials that Mm -hmm. did not uh, present an effect, they put them in the file drawer. Those that did show an effect greater than placebo, we see a lot of concerns with the outcome measures, uh, statistical significance versus what's called clinical significance. So let me tell you what that means. Um, Somebody may, um, well, what is usually done is there's some outcome measure to determine the effectiveness of the drugs. And and that's established up front. Yes. Yeah. Hamilton depression scale is the most frequent. Mm -hmm. And you could have a statistically significant difference on a outcome measure that has no clinical relevance. So for example, if you're severely depressed and you have a a score uh, within the Hamilton depression that's in a severe range, and then there's a two-point difference, which is exactly what has happened, which is exactly what has happened... um, when you look at the medi- the meta-analyses, is there's only about a two-point difference, but it's statistically significant. But there's absolutely no clinical relevance. And so that is enough to publish a study that says that they are statistically significant compared to placebo. So here's something that I struggled with, because with the clinical trials, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a statistician. So jumping into any type of data and recognizing whether or not something's effective or, or even relevant um, is, is impossible for somebody who, like myself, may just be a patient, you know, or, uh, or someone who has to, to take the drug. So the scale that you're referencing, what, what's two points mean? Is it means nothing. It means nothing. Okay. It absolutely means, means nothing. So when somebody has that two point difference within my practice, when we're in a treatment, there's no response, right? You're not going to be able to determine that there's a change in one's quality of life. So when we're talking about relevance mm-hmm. and effectiveness, do SSRIs or antidepressants improve quality of life? Would those who go on an antidepressant have 
of less depression or less relapse of depression compared to what would be considered natural recovery, someone who never went on an SSRI. Mm -hmm. And all available data demonstrates to me that if you go on an SSRI, you're more likely to have a relapse into depression and you're more likely to stay in depression for a longer period of time, including increasing the likelihood that that illness becomes chronic. Now, this is concerning to us because traditionally depressive episodes are episodic and there's something called spontaneous recovery. That means that they will recover without any intervention or treatment at all. So when you're even looking at the placebo effect within uh, these, these clinical trials, you have to also include spontaneous recovery. So clients may go on an SSRI and the natural factors that led to the depression in the first place resolve themselves in some way. Can I, can I share a personal story? Please. So when I was 19 going my 20 years old, I actually went to a psychiatrist because I felt I, I was depressed. I didn't really understand what was going on. I felt miserable. Um, so it was bad enough that my mom had noticed and she had said, listen, this isn't you. And she took me to a psychiatrist within 15 minutes of that first initial visit. I left that building with a diagnosis of severe, severe depression and, I, and, and bipolar. So 15 minutes. 15 minutes. I also left with two prescriptions. One was Zoloft and the other lithium. Lithium, wow. Now, this is personal to me, this podcast, because I'm, I'm, I'm angry that it took 15 minutes. The person was very insincere. There was no personal connection. There was nothing. There was just, you have a problem and these pills will help you solve this problem. I was on the pills for approximately four weeks. Now, again, selective memory. What I noticed in a, going back to that point is during that four-week time span, I did not feel any better. I felt numb. I can recall um, side effects were, were minimal in terms of you know eating and, and, and other habits, but I certainly did not feel as if I were myself. There were my personality had changed. Now, my my mom, in talking to her in preparation for this podcast, I said, "Do you remember what you know what I what what I was like after? Did you notice a difference where you were happier that hey, this is going to help?" And she again, she's you know now in her eighties, so she said, "Well, I just remember thinking I don't want you to be on this." And the doctor said you would be on this for the rest of your life. And they were expensive. After four weeks, I just stopped. Thankfully, I had a father that actually just didn't talk to me because he didn't understand what I was going through. And that affected me because I had a really good relationship with my father. And after the four-week time span, because he wasn't talking to me, I just kind of woke up and I said, well, I don't want to be on medication anymore. And I certainly don't want to do this anymore. I think I was just sad about the situation I was in at the moment. And I was going through... A, a shitty relationship. That's what it was. I was sad because I was going through a bad relationship and I was able to not take them anymore. I was able to, to come out of that. Um, and I was able to live a, a life that I think is fulfilling. Talk to me about that though, that experience, how many people experience what I did? Millions. I think I want to 
touch on a, a couple things. There are going to be people who are listening to this podcast who will say, antidepressants help me. Um, there might even be people who believe that they saved their lives. And I think it's important to comment on, on that because I don't want to devalue anyone's experience. And if you believe something is helping you, who are we to be critical of that? Mm-hmm. And in no way are we advocating to pull all SSRIs from the market. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm advocating for greater informed consent and being able to talk about what these drugs are actually doing. Dr. Joanna Moncrief is a um, psychiatrist uh, in England who talks a lot about this, and she's developed a, a model that that counters the diseased model um, that is traditional in, in psychiatry, the idea that it, the drugs are correcting a um, chemical abnormality. Obviously, that's false, but what they are doing is they are altering physiology. So anyone who takes a drug, including an SSRI, will experience an altered state of experience, changing their emotions, their thinking, and consequently have an impact on behavior. Is it possible that a percentage of people will interpret that experience as helpful? And, the, and looking at the data, yes. Um, but it's a small percentage of people, um, probably one in 10 who actually take the drug, will identify it as, as helpful. Mm-hmm. It's likely it's some emotional numbing effect. Is that antidepressant? The answer is no. In fact, we would think that actually feeling those emotions and understanding them is necessary for recovery. And I think that is what's aligned with my understanding of emotion regulation and how one overcomes clinical depression. And we would expect, and there's a, great, there's a greater question here, do antidepressants improve the condition? Do they improve society? Since Prozac has come to market in 1988, we have a 1,000-fold increase in depression in society. Why is that? <laughs> Well, there's multiple reasons. It's not just about the drug itself. It's also about how we categorize depression. Yeah, and Kelly, thank you for sharing your story. Um, And the label that Kelly was given was severe depression and bipolar disorder. How in 15 minutes can someone come up with the label severe depression? How can someone come up with bipolar disorder in 15 minutes? Unless you're actually seeing somebody in a manic state right in front of you, which... Well, Obviously, I've known you for a long time. I've never seen you in a manic no, state. No, one of the one of the questions I actually remember was, did did, did you want to hurt yourself or harm yourself? And I mean, at that point in time, I probably had said yeah because I was certainly not happy with my, my the choices I was making in my own life. Mm. And so, yes, you know, if people sat there and asked you, hey. Do you, um, are you happy? No. What, well, what are you thinking of harming yourself? Do you, are you thinking of like leaving? Yeah, it's hard. It was hard for me at the time, but that didn't mean it, yeah. that question led him to immediately say, okay, we have a solution for you. I got the diagnosis. I got the pills the same day. The idea of thoughts to me throws me off because I think things all the time. It doesn't mean I'm actually going to follow through on it. 
And I, I mean, I've never been, um, I think I've, I've been, you know, depressed like anybody, just a, a regular emotional state of mind during a period of time. But then you do come out of it. Um, if somebody said, are you, are you thinking about elephants? I would say, I just thought of an elephant. Oh, no, I am too. Yeah. How do you not? You know, if I'm sad. Yeah, of course I'm thinking of maybe, you know, I, I know some people may think about hurting themselves. Some people may think about suicide. You think about it in yourself and you're like, you know, that's not, no, I'm not going to do that. But I thought about it. Doesn't mean you're going to do it. It's not something I would resort to. Yeah, it's the difference between somebody who's actually suicidal and act- and someone who's had thoughts. Mm-hmm. Just because you've had thoughts of wanting to to hurt yourself, we should not be really concerned about that. In fact, it may be a much more high frequency event in in a human lifespan than we ob- we acknowledge. That's much different than the intention to end your yeah, life. Yeah. Um. So, like, I think we're we're talking right now about the power of expectancy and beliefs, right? Um. If you believe something is, is helping you, that's powerful on health, right? Um, and the challenge with looking at the clinical data in these trials is double blinds were, were broken. So what does that mean, double blinds were broken? Yeah, so the, um, in order to be able to determine a drug's effectiveness, mm-hmm. um, the group of participants who were taking... There has to be a group of participants who were taking the drugs who didn't know that they were taking the active agent. Okay, so this is uh, normal trials. They say a double-blinded study. This is, okay, so you you don't know whether you're taking A or B. Right, because if you knew you're you're taking it, right, then the expectancy effect, you know, plays in here, that placebo effect. Um, But everyone, the blind group was broken because they knew they were given the active agent because of the side effects. Okay, okay. So it became a active placebo. So the pe- that increased the, the response rate. And the other thing that's complicated in mental health, when somebody's suffering, especially with depression, human contact matters. Like that somebody is validating your experience mm-hmm. and contacting with you actually creates an improvement in itself. So can we, can we just go off here? There is an actual video of... Um He's, a, he's an attorney that, you know, helps individuals who are going through this, who have taken medications and very, very bright individual named Michael Baum. And what you just said should shock the core of the audience in terms of what happens with FDA, with everything and double blind and all of the things you were just talking about. I just want to go and show you this video so that you can remark. Uh, I want to hear your comments about it. Go ahead. The, the medical review analysis of those uh, those trials at the time for Prozac, they didn't statistically significant outperform uh, placebo either, mm. but they had secondary uh, um, outcomes that looked okay. And they had some positive, better than placebo results, but they weren't statistically significant. They couldn't separate it out from a chance occurrence. Mm. So even a guy like Andrew Mossholder, a very sophisticated dude, a very sophisticated uh, FDA reviewer, got tricked. Mm. And that's how kids ended up getting prescribed uh, SSRIs, even though the chemical actually doesn't significantly outperform placebo. That problem is, I think, a tragedy for all the kids who ever got prescribed uh, an SSRI then had the misfortune of uh, 
having suicidal ideation or suicidal behavior or self-destructive behavior. And I represented a lot of them. Um, I represented the, the parents of some that died as a result of their successful suicide attempt. And then also some of the kids that survived were able to tell me what it was like. So w- j- just to clarify, this is an individual that's an advocate for, ind- for people that have been diagnosed and have been put on the medications. He's an attorney. He's an attorney. Who, who um, represented patients in class action lawsuit against the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so a lot of questions that people will, will ask is, well, how do these drugs become approved by the FDA if they're not working, if they haven't been proven to be safe and effective? And these are really good questions. And he speaks to it there. This, he's talking about the SSRI data for adolescents, which we as a practice had to develop a position statement against SSRIs for depression and anxiety in children, adolescents, and young adults because of the, the data. But he's, he's talking about how uh, the data can be manipulated. Um, and what he's also not talking to about is the political nature of government approval and the lobbying efforts of pharmaceuticals companies and how they're also tied to our elected officials. So those are factors. Um, but there's also ways to take a look at the, the data and try to prove that there's something of an effect that's happening. One is if your trials are short, mm-hmm. right? So eight weeks, I think the majority of the trials are. Yeah, I, I kind of went off on one of those if-then statements because like Kelly's story, there's this idea that once you're on a medication, you're on it for life, right? So I, I went back to the, the idea of, all right, if this is true, then why do these drugs exist? And if these drugs are not effective then clearly somewhere in the labeling, it says to not take this medication for more than a period of X amount of months. So I jumped into just the, the, uh, the labeling for, um, I just, I Googled antidepressant number one market share. It happens to be, uh, Zoloft, right? So I just, I read through all of the insert information in there trying to figure things out as if, if I were a patient and I were taking this, how can I take it in a responsible way? And the only clinical data that was represented there was the short-term trials. Every single one, short-term, 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 eight to 12 weeks, eight to 12 weeks. And then I was like, okay, well, how long should I be taking this medication? And it's impossible to find anything telling you when you should stop taking it. But if you no longer have a depressive uh, symptom or if you're no longer feeling depressed, you have to continue taking the medication for at least six months to a year because then the doctors say, if you stop earlier, you'll get depressed again. And as soon as people stop and they feel any sense of anxiety or anything, they feel as if they're having a relapse. Yes. And what is it? It's a withdrawal effect. And, and you know what? I, I came into this discussion. I, I texted you guys a couple of days ago. I think my position on this needs to be pro pharma because having a conversation with three people in the room that are agreeing on something can be quite boring. But as I did more research and I, and I independently started reading this stuff, I was shocked and surprised. And I realized how it's impossible to have a pro pharma statement based on what's happening right now. Um, and yes, you, you touched on, there is a percentage of people that benefit from this, but what percentage is it? Small, very small. Very small. And is it just a placebo response, right? And so that's my conclusion. It's a placebo response. Um, I've been very outspoken in the last couple months. 
And I am trying to promote the data as I know it with my clinical experience. And overwhelmingly, people are thanking me or believe that it's bold, it's, it's truthful, but you're going to have people who think that I'm spreading misinformation. And we're dismissing all the harms that this has created for people who've been on these drugs much longer than ever studied and have to go through hell through the withdrawal effects. And it, it stops the conversation on what is recovery from clinical depression, right? So there's, there's this effect now psychologically that if you've taken these drugs and you've bought into this idea of a chemical abnormality mm -hmm. and that you need these drugs for life, the actual idea of thinking about it differently is um, so threatening and somewhat, and you're offended by it because you've attached to this idea of your, of, of why you feel the way you do. And it almost becomes part of your own identity. So confirmation bias. I mean, that's what it is, right? If you, and that's why you start defending it and why you might get upset if somebody says, well, you know, maybe did you ever try, you know, exercising? Did you ever try doing this? And I've seen some of the responses on Twitter for that because, and they, they actually attack that. I, I saw one post where you said, you say it a lot, like, you know, sleep, um, good health, uh, eat well. These are things that you can do today that will help you. And I've seen your posts. And there, there's no, no one should be attacking that, period. No one. But yet they are attacked a lot. Why? Because, because you're invalidating their experience. Mm -hmm. and, and so every one of us here... Kelly, myself, Sean, we've been depressed in our lives. It's painful, right? The way that I think about it that differs is that that emotional experience is there to serve us. There are things we need to face. There are changes we need to make. So I am stating this, that part of being human is vulnerability to depression. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that um, there are there are certain biological factors that aren't um, at play here. I'm not saying that. We know that there are biological and genetic vulnerabilities to a number of things, and there's great variability. To the degree in which people experience emotions intensely differs greatly. Are those people maybe more vulnerable to experiencing those emotions intensely, including like aversive emotions and sad emotions? Absolutely, yes. But they're also vulnerable to experiencing other experiences um, at a more intense rate, including joy, happiness, empathy. But we're, we are conditioned to, to think about these things in terms of medical illnesses now, which is that medical model that is aligned with pharma. And until we begin to change that narrative and think about mental health differently, we're going to be stuck in this idea. So what I want to do is I want to now protect the next generations of going down the same path of other people who've gotten hooked on psychiatric drugs, experienced the harms, and are stuck in their original depression or anxiety or whatever that condition is. I want to be able to protect the young people because despite this information, prescriptions are increasing at an overwhelming rate, especially for people between the ages of 16 and 25. How can we get the, it seems that people right now then, including that young lady on Twitter would be overestimating the benefits mm. of what they're being told the drug would do and underestimating the costs of what that drug will potentially do to you in the future. 
well, this is why we have science. And this is why randomized controlled double blind clinical trials should exist. But people have to know that these drugs have not been studied long term. So we don't have the data on what is going to happen to somebody who's been on these drugs for one year, two years, three years, let alone 15 years. And we have to rely on patient experience. And that's where I open this up talking about I had to resolve the major difference between what I saw and what was being told. There was a period of time that these drugs were, were, were discussed in the terms of non-habit forming. So there was no dependence. Now we realize that um, any type of drug, including an SSRI, changes your physiology and there is an adaptation process and a reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you take that drug away, there is going to be a, um, a withdrawal effect. Now that seems to differ based on the person. And because we're all uniquely different, there are some people who stop this medication and do not have much of a, a withdrawal response or one that's like debilitating. And there are people who become disabled over it. We've heard that label before, non-habit forming, right? Didn't they say that with like opioids? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and they said it on that commercial in our first podcast, um, the Zoloft commercial. Yeah, that yeah. was one of the, th I rem absolutely said non-habit forming. That was a big marketing. So a message to people out there who are currently on SSRIs, don't just stop them abruptly. Um, they're trying to determine how you can like taper this effectively to minimize the effects. Yeah, let's touch on something because I was trying to figure out, um, you know, I always go back to, you know, what's the solution, right? So yeah, Kelly had an experience where he went into a psychiatrist and in 15 minutes walked out with uh, two prescriptions. Um, and, and I'm the type of person where I put more ownership on myself, right? You can blame the pharmaceutical industry, you can blame the psychiatrist, or you can blame yourself for just... Um, you know, uh, assuming and, and giving credit to the doctor in that moment that he had more experience than you and was able to diagnose you, um, you know, accurately. Um, and I had this conversation with Roger the other day about before you go in for, let's say you, you tear your ACL, you know, playing volleyball on the weekend with your family at a barbecue or football in high school, and you go and the doctor looks at it and, you know, does all the tests and says, yep, you've torn your ACL, we need to do reconstructive surgery. You know, most people would say, you know what, I really think I did, time to have that surgery. Or, you know what, I'm going to get a, a second opinion. And you go to that second opinion, and the doctor goes, you know what, it's not completely torn. It's just partially torn. Let's go through some rehabilitation. We'll strengthen around it. You'll be fine. Give yourself three months, and, and you'll be back out on the field. You know, the idea of getting a second opinion, does that necessarily happen in the field of psychiatry? Or do you get a doctor's appointment, and you just say, this is my quick fix. I want to I go about it. Well, the problem is, Sean, is that 75% of these diagnoses and medications are being um, prescribed by primary care physicians. Oh, so your normal, like, general practitioner, I go in there, I've got, uh, I got a cold, you know, give me some medicine. 75%. Or, Jesus, that's scary. Yeah. That's so scary. And I'm sorry. It, it's very scary. And they are not experts in this area at all. They're not experts or trained in the evaluation, diagnosis, nor treatment. Of mental health conditions. So, I mean, the side effects, we, we were, we touched on that a little bit, but as I was reading through that Zoloft insert, trying to, you know, find any information about the, the long-term effectiveness, which is not in there, um, 
one of the, the, the sexual side effects alone should be a deterrent for most most males, right? Um, and females. I, I, and for, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm relating it to myself, so I apologize. Um, erectile dysfunction is mentioned in there, but then this label of ejaculation failure, and, and I didn't know what ejaculation failure was, um, so I had to Google it um, and, and actually get the description, and it's delayed or not at all. So you, you don't have erectile dysfunction, but you, you can't complete. So that, I, that must be very um, not soul-crushing for, like, your partner, right? Um, I just, I, why make this leap to immediately start taking medication without, you know, looking at all the other alternatives? Yeah, so, the, so the, first of all, the idea here is that um, the side effects and coping and dealing with the side effects is better than the depression itself. And I want to quote a young lady who recently posted this on social media. My depression was a five-star vacation compared to the side effects. Wow. What are the things that make life worth living? You know, they include the ability to love, the ability to feel. Um, intimacy, sexual closeness with a partner, someone that you love. Being able to taste and experience food. Um, to be able to sleep. Uh, having energy. You know, all the things that would zap you of your joy to, to live are side effects of these exact drugs to target the depression that you entered in for treatment in the first place. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's, uh, it's insanity. Um, and I don't, want, I don't want people to be afraid of their emotional experiences. And I want people to also understand that even if you are severely depressed, there are safe and effective treatments for you. And we should not, at this point, based on the data, based on 30 plus years of statistics, we should not be viewing psychiatric drugs, SSRIs, as frontline interventions. Because the data, the safety data doesn't support it. The outcome data doesn't support it. Even the drug companies are marketing these drugs for other conditions that have never been studied. So for example, can you, could you imagine giving an anorexic teen, underweight, nutritionally deprived and starved, and SSRI. They do routinely now. They do, we have no clinical data that shows that that's going to do anything. But the food is the medicine, right? The food is the medicine, yet we are providing teens and SSRI. Women who um, are experiencing premenstrual dysphoria are being prescribed SSRIs. People with chronic pain are being provided SSRIs. They are just widely being administered. Kids who are experiencing typical episodic mood difficulties in adolescence being prescribed SSRIs. Those who were struggling with the lockdown and the pandemic, fear and anxiety are being prescribed Still SSRIs. mainly by, by their, their family doctors. Almost predominantly. So that needs to be, that is something that really, that pisses me off. That should, be, that's something that could be changed today and yes, monitored grief. and oversight. How about this? Grief or loss. You lose a loved one being prescribed an SSRI. Where you, where the actual process of grief is as normal to being a human as there exists. They're, se they're selling you a message. And the message is your emotional pain is disordered. Mm -hmm. It's problematic. And this drug or this pill 
can help you feel better. In actuality, the only feeling better that's going to exist is what you attach to it, what you attribute to it, your own belief about it. And it comes along with a lot of side effects. And those are a lot of like subjective questions, right? I mean, you could ask somebody a question and how they're relating or how they're feeling. It's just... I want to bring this up because as as a teacher of communication and rhetoric and and that, obviously, I believe our system, our educational system is failing miserably at teaching critical thought. Mm -hmm. And teachers who think they're teaching critical thought are not teaching critical thought. They're teaching kids their own biases and, and that... But I want to bring this up and I want to get your thought on this. So I wrote down here based off of all the research we did for this podcast. I said, well, here's the thing. What I went through was almost like a Likert scale kind of thing with some questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those questions are worded in a way. Now, I'm a big believer that societies in general develop from communication. If you have um, languages that are complex, if you can create rules for them and people can learn them, you can excel. In this case, though, we are so advanced with our language that there's it's called rhetoric. We can actually manipulate the words to the point where we can then manipulate other people. And when I'm reading some of these Likert scale questions, it makes you feel as if you're just going to agree with them anyway. Mm -hmm. So I just um, my question would be, all right, wait, are these the questions that a doctor would ask? Yes, Uh, let's do it on me. Well, uh, well, all right. <laughs> let's let's do it. seriously. Let's do this. It'll be an exercise. Oh wait. Um, uh, actually, I, I, you you bring up the questions. Do it from the actual thing. He can bring that up. Here's my question before he gets to that. Okay. Okay. As a, a person that 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 thinks about words, how much of this? Because this is supposed to be all subject. This is all subjective, right? It's all subjective. These trials are coming from subjective questioning. To tell whether a person increases or decreases in mood. As a person who focuses a lot on rhetoric and communication, a simple Likert scale question can be worded in a way that will get you the results that you want. Am I wrong? What a great segue. So this is the PHQ-9. Nine questions. What's PHQ-9? Patient health questionnaire. Okay. Developed by who? Oh, boy. The pharmaceutical industry? Pfizer. Oh, Pfizer. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Marketed to who? General practitioners, primary care. Nine questions to assess whether you have depression or not. Something as complex and complicated as the human experience. Nine questions, and there's even a PHQ-2. Okay. Sean, I'm going to interview you with the PHQ-9. I'm going to be as honest as possible because... um I, I'm, I'm just curious to see what my score is. Okay. Now, this is the Likert scale. Okay. Right? goes from not at all, several days, more than half the days, nearly every day. Okay? So not at all, several days, more than half the days, nearly every day. And I want our listening audience to be able to also answer these questions too. Okay. And understand how they can be widely applied to most people at any given time. Okay. And this is over the last two weeks. Last two weeks. How often have you been bothered by any of the following problems? That's it. Two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. All right. Which is, again, arbitrary, right? Because people can go through some tough times in a two-week period of time. It'd be very normal. I would like, I'd want to know three months, you know? But anyway, that's all. That's as little as it takes to diagnose someone with depression. Two weeks. So little interest or pleasure in doing things, not at all, several days, 
more than half the days, nearly every day. Little interest or pleasure in doing things. Um, what are things? things so vague, <laughs> right? What are things? If it has to do with cutting the grass or cleaning, right? Or you maybe doing some go, aversive tasks. God, we, we I don't a, want to do this today. Oh yeah, maybe you could. We have a small child at home. I don't have time <laughs> to do anything. What are my things? Cleaning a bottle and making a bottle and go. changing a diaper. So you might actually say more than half the days. Yeah, and that's like because I don't get to do any of the things. <laughs> I'm miserable. That's like a that's a two out of three, right? Yeah. We're already creeping into the more depre- the, okay. the more severe All range. Right. So far. Yeah. All right. Um. So here is. Uh, and just, I'm a psychologist, so I have some understanding of test construction. Yeah. When you ask a question, you have to make sure it's the that construct that you're trying to assess. So listen to this one. Feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. So there's three there. You only have to answer, you, you only have to answer one because it's down, depressed, or hopeless. Right, so down is different than depressed. I, That's what I've, I said about language. You I'd can the you can interpret that in any way you want to. Depressed is different than op- yeah. than hopeless, right? Yeah. So if I was feeling down for whatever reason, in the last two weeks, I, there's been a day or two where I felt down. Okay, so not at all. No, it's not not at all. Then you're already now getting a point for this. Okay. Several days, more than half the days. Several. Or nearly we'll say every, several days. There you go. You got a one now. How many is several? More than a few. <laughs> A couple's well, two. When when <laughs> when the baseline is not at all, yeah. Then you're having people circle ones because what's nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I was down on Sunday. It was rainy. It was rainy. There was like nothing to do, and I was reading some stuff that's depressing. Okay, mm-hmm. down. Well, it wasn't not at all. I'm gonna circle one. Yeah. All right. How many questions? Nine. Nine, okay. Let's so go to number two. three. Two of my scores already a three? You already have a three, yeah. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I'm getting depressed. You're, you're, <laughs> the prescription pad is coming out of the pocket. Jesus. All right. Question three. Trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much? Oh, my God. I, I wake up every night at 2 o'clock in the morning because um, my, my, my wife is still nursing. Um, and we have a child. So um, I have trouble staying asleep all the time. And what's what, what's sleeping too much? Imagine being a teen. What is sleeping too much? What's sleeping not enough? What's, you know, do you know how many people for various reasons can have problems falling asleep that have nothing to do with depression? Okay. All right. Sean, so all not at all. Several days, more than half the days, nearly every day. Nearly every day. He, he would leave right now with the prescription. He would. He'd be done. Like I said, 15 minutes, less than 15. If you're using this measure to diagnose yeah. depression, which, is, which they are. Um, next one. Poor appetite or overeating. Uh, not at all. I'm, that's you. Yeah, that's me. Do you know how many Americans struggle with overeating? Do you know how many percent of the population might put several days more than half the days? And is it even a factor in depression? Can someone have poor appetite or overeating for reasons that have nothing to do with depression? Remember, this is used to diagnose depression mm-hmm. in, in your healthcare centers. Okay. Now this one. This one kills me. Feeling bad about yourself 
Remember what I said about constructs too. Or that you are a failure. Or have let yourself or your family down. So now there's three, right? So if you feel bad about yourself in any way, that's a symptom of depression. How about you've let yourself down or you're someone in your family down? That's now a symptom of depression? That's a basically everyday thing. If you're a, if you're a parent or you, you, you're going to let somebody down, you're not going to make the right decisions all the time. So almost anyone at any given point might be able to identify that and it has nothing to do with clinical depression. Think about it. Let's do some more so we can move on here. I'll give myself a zero on that one because you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty high on myself. All right, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble concentrating on things such as reading the newspaper or watching television. Wait, repeat that question again. I lost Trouble my... concentrating on things. <laughs> that is... Their example <laughs> is reading the newspaper <laughs> or watching television. How dated is that? Reading the newspaper? It's dated, okay. right? Let's go on to the next one. Moving or speaking so slowly that other people could have noticed. See, there's the words I'm talking about. Or the opposite. Being so fidgety or restless that you've been moving around a lot more than usual. And the only one of these questions that is relevant is the last one. Thoughts that you would be better off dead or of hurting yourself in some way. But there, that's the one that... I remember being asked and I would have said, yeah, at that point in my life. But I didn't ever think, oh, I want to completely just And remember, remember, remember the question is speaking to what you talked about before. It's just asking about thoughts. Right. Right. And um, so it doesn't take it to the next step of it, you know, intention or things like that. My point being on on this is the questions are designed Mm -hmm. in a specific way to increase people who would identify as depressed to increase the sales of their drugs so developed by Pfizer. Go back to the scale. Obviously I had a couple points there. Is there a threshold at which, you know, you're actually considered, um, you know, eligible to get a prescription? Yeah. You know, how many points do you need? Um, only 10, 10. Okay. So listen to this PHQ nine score of 10 or greater had a sensitivity of 88% and a specificity of 88% for major major depression. Even It can even be used over the telephone. So they're saying you ask those questions and you get near 10, that you are at 10, that it is... Now there's nine questions, right? So if nine of those, you only answer... A, if eight of those, you only answer a one, which we were doing my sleep, My sleep alone... Yep. Put me up to like a seven. And right? one other question, let's say it's overeating, goes to a two or a three. You are now diagnosed with major depression as they see it in base, in primary care. And so legally, I can write a script and I would be able to... Legally? Well, I'm they just They don't saying, even need this criteria to write a script. They can, someone can come in and say, I've been feeling really down. You know, they doctors, don't have to do this. Yeah, doctors are... They, they have those rights to... to Make, to write that prescription. So what we're talking about is the use of poor diagnostic tools, let alone the diagnostic criteria itself is invalid, but the tools are even worse. And that is intentionally designed to increase prescription drugs. And it's worked. Mm-hmm. And it continues to work. We need to wake up as society. Like, wake up. 
And we need to have the message out there. We have to talk again about what is normal, what is experienced throughout the course of a lifespan. And we then we also have to talk about how to effectively cope, how to effectively live healthy. And you have to ask yourself if those kind of questions are being censored or muted, who's benefiting? I think people, yeah, like, I think people experiencing depression, especially children, and when I did, I think all I actually needed was connection. That's all I needed mm. it was somebody yeah. to talk to or connect with. And I think sometimes when people sit down and they do these Likert scales, I think that that's a connection that maybe a child would make, an adolescent would make with that particular doctor, with whoever's asking questions. And again, for that moment, or maybe the next two weeks, there's that hope. So they start the drug and they're almost all like on, on this high of, hey, I'm getting help and I have somebody I can talk to. And so then we, miss, we, we misinterpret the effectiveness of some of these drugs because the person actually reached out and connected with somebody. It's the power of connection. Mm-hmm. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.